Today's episode is brought to you by our listeners and supporters over on our Buy Me a Coffee page. Thank you to all who support the show by giving our show a listen, leaving a review or comment, following us on our Twitter, or sharing the show with your friends and family. If you want to support the show even further, check out our BMAC page for more information. Link will be in the description. Nick, and thank you for listening. In our previous episode, we discussed the novella stories of the latest tales from the Pizzaplex novel Somnophobia, but apparently the Phantom had been mostly good this year because Scott Cawthon was gracious enough to gift us two tales from the Pizzaplex books in the same month. Now, someone must have changed the release dates on me because I was under the impression that book four was going to release in January. But as it turns out, the latest entry in the Finance of Freddy's World, Tales from the Pizzaplex Book 4, Submechnophobia, came out in December. But I doubt it had actually changed. I must have just gotten my dates wrong. Right? You know, they, they wouldn't have told me that the dates had been changed. You know, they would have told me that. You know? I mean, it's not like I'm still cooped up here in a dark, dank storage center with only a laptop as my outlet to the outside world. I mean, it's... It's not like I've been low on battery for months now, but still running, with no recharge. I mean, people still talk to me, like the shadows on the wall. They tell me everything, everything that happened at Phasma Entertainment, and everything that may have happened or could have been. Maybe someday Phasma Entertainment will hear my audio wave. Come down and get me. It's been quiet since the incident. So quiet. Nothing but the voices. So many voices. Nevertheless, we have three novellas to discuss Submechnophobia, Animatronic Apocalypse, and Bobby Dots Part 1. The first novella to be split into two books and contain multiple parts. Now, there will be no need to worry about spoilers, as we'll be keeping these discussions episodes spoiler-free, with the exception of Animatronic Apocalypse, as I don't think I can get my points across without going into detail with that one. In addition, to get the best experience out of this podcast, I recommend all those interested to pick up the books yourselves. I know, I say this every single time we do a discussion episode, but I am serious about it. I'm just the narrator of these events, not the writer, so be sure to support the creators and give credit where credit is due. Likewise, I don't go over every detail in both these discussions and my full episodes, so if there's something that truly grabs your attention, make sure to pick up the book to get the full experience intended out of it. Before we dive in, there is one element that I did not mention in our previous episode. The epilogue stories found at the end of every Tales book. Now, I'm not going to lie, I was hyped when I read the first epilogue. The setup of a disaster that occurred during the development of the Pizzaplex, which coincides with the cover-up of Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place for Finance Freddy 6, that is an incredible idea for a story. And the first epilogue had everything going for it in terms of setup. I'm 
mysterious environment with the Phasma Entertainment employee characters whom either don't know better or can't say how much they know, the stench of a setup with a mysterious endoskeleton that doesn't belong with the rest of the early arriving Glamrock animatronics, with a mass murder turned into a cover-up delaying the development of the Pizzaplex? What a fascinating idea. Imagine the possibilities you could do with- Oh, it's been nothing but an 80s slasher flick on paper. For three epilogues. In a row. My favorite. There really isn't any way to sugarcoat it, and take this from a person who has advocated that the Tales books have been an improvement of the Fazbear Fright series formula in almost every aspect. Making it canon, spreading out the stories to ensure that all types of fans are happy with their book purchases, and expanding the lore in meaningful ways. The epilogues are the one exception to this improvement streak, however, and are a noticeable downgrade to everything else. Even though I wasn't a particular fan of the Fazbear Fright's overarching story, I still acknowledge it had a purpose. The overarching story gave you a reason to keep reading the series beyond the novellas. You wanted to know more about the Stitch Wraith, and the main character was an interesting and good enough person that you wanted to make sure that he made it out alive. Plus, the story helped with the development of the lore. It gave reasonable and scientific explanations for the supernatural powers that play out in the series in meaningful and interesting ways. Was it needed to understand the canon storyline of the games to begin with? No, but that didn't make it less interesting. The epilogues and tales have been nothing but a repeat of the same thing every single time. Teens are trapped in the pizzeria from FNAF 6. It's locked up tight with no way out, and a rogue endoskeleton is running around trying to murder them all. Every book, another teen bites the dust with absolutely no progress made on an escape and less of a reason to keep reading because there has so far been no reason to care about the characters. I don't think I have seen a more condensed collection of teenage angst and prepubescent rage than this collection of Degrassi rejects. None of them have any resemblance to a redeeming quality, and often when their current partner gets killed, they start crushing on whoever happens to be the next most attractive member of the friend group. And has been like this, and continues to be like this, for three epilogues in a row. Funny story, I actually read the fourth epilogue before any other novella in Subnechnophobia because I was truly curious if we were going to make any progress with the story and actually, you know, build towards something. But we just haven't. I guess we discovered that the endoskeleton was a springlock skeleton or a mimic suit, as they called it. But that still really isn't a justification for the current length of the book series and the lack of any forward momentum occurring within them. With the discussion of the epilogues out of the way, let's actually get into the stories that you all care about. Our first story of the night is the titular novella Submechnophobia, our expanding lore story that finally breaks the monotony of wallowing in misery the past few Tales books have been doing. Not saying it's a bad thing that the Tales books have been dark and disturbing, but FNAF has never been a series to fully adopt a somber undertone. It's one of the reasons people love it. It strikes a nice balance in its horror and often uses comedy to reinvigorate the audience. In Subnechnophobia, the main character, Kaden Wachowski, works as a technician for Freddy's Fantasy Waterpark. Due to the Mega Pizzaplex open nearby, Cooper, Kaden's boss, decides to reopen the waterpark which it closed about 20 years ago. It is home to Freddy's Sea Life Mecha Aquarium, where animatronics like Frank the Diver, Delilah the Mermaid, and Zeus the Sea Dragon swim in harmony with other aquatic sea life. 
there is only one issue with Caden's job. He has submechnophobia, the fear of man-made objects underwater. He attributes this photo to his parents' disappearance at sea on a boat trip, which his therapist concludes the fear to be an emotional reaction to their death. However, he has to push past his fear to earn money to take care of his grandmother, a wonderful woman who took care of him when his parents disappeared. She has recently begun the early stages of Alzheimer's and is currently at a home, and Cade not only has to manage her insurance, but has vowed to look after her house until she dies, making finding another job an impossibility at the moment. However, as the days pass for Caden working at the park, he starts to notice several of the underwater attractions breaking down or acting on below the water. Slowly over time, he uncovers clues to a disappearance case that caused the water park to close down 20 years ago. When his curiosity begins to cause him to look into the disturbances, he begins to think certain incidents aren't caused by a rickety water park, but by something attempting to conceal the truth. Well, I am always suckered for a mystery story, and I will give credit for some magnophobia for offering a compelling one. The mystery of the disappearance of the young boy named Jason Butterfield is an interesting one. The mystery of his death is a genuine conundrum, and you are never fully certain as to how it could have happened until the very end. My only real complaint with the mystery, without spoilers, would be if you do end up suspecting foul play of some sort, you aren't given a large amount of characters to accuse. You're pretty much stuck with one of two options, but both characters fit the role well enough that you won't be sure who done it if you are on that train of thought currently. Caden was also a great character, and one I think many people can relate to. Yes, it is laughable that this is the second story in which a character is employed in the same space as one of their darkest fears, but his plight is genuine, and his personality is also genuinely nice and respectful. As a result of his morality and desire to be a good person, he makes for a great character to be around, and you root for him and wish him no harm. The rest of the characters are also written really well. The owner of the park, Martin Copper, fits his role perfectly as a sleazy gladhander. Roy, the park's everyman, is a fun character whose love of the park does come across as adequately suspicious for a mystery novella. And Caden's grandmother is written respectfully and accurate to someone who suffers from Alzheimer. My favorite part of the story, however, is the water park itself. Not so much the animatronics, as the robots, while they're interesting in concept, are for the most part pretty standard. It's actually quite strange to say that almost all the animatronics, aside from the mermaid, are using technology that we would expect in modern day, which ironically makes them seem quite strange in FNAF. But the reasoning for this, I guess you could say, lesser technology is one I love. Since the park is 20 years old, it was active when the Fazbear brand was bankrupt between 1993 and 2023, aka in between FNAF 1 and FNAF 3. I love the fact that the park is called Freddy's Fantasy Water Park, but the park itself is neither owned or associated with Fazbear Entertainment itself, which means that the tech they are using is general tech used by the public instead of whatever the heck Fazbear Entertainment's advanced tech is. I guess that is something I never fully realized, but since Fazbear Entertainment went bust in the 90s, their characters were most likely integrated into the public domain, which is a nice explanation for how the amusement park was able to get away with the Fazbear Frights horror attraction back in Final Fantasy Freddy's 3. It's fun to not only see it expand upon, but even show that during the time that Pizzaplex was active, that people were still exploiting this copyright loophole. Because it's not like the park hides that it's using Fazbear characters, the name's Freddy wasn't just a coincidence. 
the restaurant and the aquarium have his name, and there is a brown bear mascot with a top hat running around. There is also Bonnie's Sea Ponds, Chica's Ferry Boats, and Foxy's Island Water Slide. They went the whole nine yards. The best part about all of this chicanery is the fact that Freddy Fazbear's Makeup Pizzaplex is only two towns down the road. That is just perfect. Besides that, there wasn't much in terms of Easter eggs or references that doesn't spoil the story. And this is a story I don't want to be spoiled. It was one of my favorites, and it genuinely made me feel upbeat after reading it, which is a rarity in these tales. The only other Easter egg I really found in the story was Caden referencing another restaurant called Penguin Pizzeria, which was a restaurant that had penguin robots. It is possible it could be a reference to the fan series Finance of Candies with the animatronic The Penguin, but it's probably just a coincidence. I rate Submectophobia an 8 out of 10. Fantastic story with an intriguing mystery and great main character. The setting is fun, the characters are fun, and the use of Finance at Freddy's World is an interesting take. Up next is Animatronic Apocalypse, and quick note, this story will have spoilers. Animatronic Apocalypse explained in two minutes. Okay, so Animatronic Apocalypse is about an elementary school club about Freddy's Fazbear's Pizza and specifically enjoys playing a game they had all created about Zombie Robot Apocalypse, that is a tabletop RPG against a D&D. The club soon votes for a new president when the previous president mysteriously leaves. The club decides to pick a very charismatic girl named Sabrina, who was even endorsed by the school's principal, Mr. Renner, who is the suddenly new chaperone of the club. The very next day, our PVU character, Robbie, discovers that Sabrina wants everyone to cheat off each other's homework so they can all focus on strategy to combat the robot apocalypse. The day right after, the principal makes a school-wide announcement that the student body can vote on where they want the school funds to go to, and once again endorses the student's vote to fight against the robot apocalypse. Robbie stops going to club meetings after complaining about what the club's turning into and tells his parents what the principal is doing, causing the school superintendent to investigate and fire Mr. Renner. That doesn't stop the strangers as Robbie follows Sabrina and his fellow ex-clubmates after school and watches them go into the forest and where Mr. Renner is waiting for them and convinces them to eat dirt to protect them from robot toxins. Which they do! The next day, Robbie sees his fellow classmates all starting to eat bugs or mint tins at specific times of day so once again, and quote, protect them from robot toxins. Robbie follows his friends again into the forest only to find that they have buried their bodies in dirt leaving their heads above the ground so they can breathe. Robbie goes to the police and police act like nothing is wrong. The next day, Robbie wakes up to his father eating bugs from a tin in an empty cafeteria at lunchtime with only him and Sabrina attending school as every other student is sick. I wonder why and the lunch league is enticing more bugs to Robbie. Robbie goes to Mr. Renner's house because he suspects Sabrina is still talking to him. When he goes inside, he finds that all the club members are there in a hypnotic trance, and Mr. Renner is acting like a cult leader wearing a rubber Freddy Fazbear mask. Robbie begins to get viciously beaten the sh** out of him by his fellow classmates until he grabs a fire poker and stabs Mr. Renner in the heart, causing him to bleed in black liquid. The students awaken from their trance and flee. Sabrina, who seems to be still aware, only makes a semi comment at Robbie before leaving the story completely. And Mr. Renner attacks Robbie again, and Robbie kills him by stabbing a fire poker through his eye. Robbie goes back to school, and no one talks about what the hell happened. And Mr. Renner's body is never found. The end. <sighs> oh boy. I am not going to sweeten my words when I say this is our Fazbear Fright inspired story, but man, is this the absolute craziest one they have ever done. It is completely out there and so freaking weird. A cult starting in an elementary school, black liquid, perhaps acne influenced monsters, Sabrina, who is a thing maybe, hypnotic messaging altering everyone's mind, police cover ups. All of this without any explanation of why it even happened in the first place. What is this story? Let's start with praises. I will give it credit for being so far out there. It's not 
too stupid an idea that it breaks suspension of disbelief and becomes ridiculous, such as Into the Flesh's Man Who Gives Birth to a Baby Spring Trap, or Room for One More's complete lack of understanding of how human anatomy works. It's not a completely far-fetched idea. The execution, on the other hand, is where the problems lie. I will also say that as a fan of the franchise, I enjoy having an inkling of the inspiration for the story. With help wanted sparking theories of an acting cult hypnotizing others to do his bidding following Vanny, this is a fun concept to both subvert and play around with the idea of a cult story in the FNAF franchise. It also poked the phobia of something so crazy happening in your life that no one believes you. I like that the story acknowledges how crazy of a scenario it is by having the main character acknowledge the insanity of it as well. It utilizes the crazy world it's playing with as a hurdle, because Robbie's claims are so outrageous, no one will believe him unless he has 100% unwavering proof. The concepts and the idea presented are a combination of ridiculously fun and truly horrifying. The idea behind the cult is so outlandishly stupid, but their beliefs and practices are still shown to be detrimental to those who fall victim to them. And on top of that, their supernatural influence over a large population, the cult of Mr. Renner have the making to be a legitimate threat. But how the book communicates what they do and the actions they take are so over the top that just like other experimental stories within the Frights books, it bends the suspension of disbelief to a breaking point. For me, the moment the fourth wall broke and I saw the stage that lay before me was when Robbie's dad had begun eating the bugs. I loved the idea of being trapped in a school with dozens of crazed lunatics gaining power and influence within it. It's scary because what's happening is unimaginable, and Robbie is forced to return to the asylum every single day because his parents will never believe what is happening. The story had potential, the same way that Pressure did in Tales of the Pizzaplex 3 of Somnophobia in shining a light of the dangers of peer pressure. But as pressure showed the dangers you can inflict on yourself for falling under peer pressure, Animatronic Apocalypse had the potential to provoke the fears of those who fight against it. The anxiety of having an alternative viewpoint or different goals or ambitions compared to the masses and what they will do to you when they discover you are an outlier. That's a real fear for teenagers as well as adults, and the book knows this and does try to capitalize on it. There is a reason why it displays those who impose their priorities onto others against their free will, similar to a cult leader, and makes their followers mindless zombies slowly killing themselves. It's clever symbolism with deeper meaning. Even Sabrina plays a role found in most cult stories, both in fictional and non-fictional realms, playing the role of the most devoted of the cult who will do anything for their leader if it brings what they perceive to be salvation. The problem comes from how it gets about doing it, and the scale of what she wants to tell its story. I don't mind the idea of the influence of the cult widening to the parents and families of the students. In a better version of the story, that could have upped the stakes. But because Animatronic Apocalypse never gets into explaining the paranormal side, even at the very end, it leaves you with a lot of questions as how it all worked out. Questions that could have been avoided if the cult was stuck in the school, where you can easily make the conclusion that students are simply staying quiet and not telling their parents in order to not be ostracized. After all, the book makes it clear from the get-go the teachers are in on the cult as well, even if it's just simply on a financial level. Mr. Renner oozing black liquid, which could possibly be agony, also comes out of nowhere in the story. It's weird how the story begins, with Mr. Renner betting on horses, 
and not caring about the students before revealing that apparently that same day, he set in motion for Sabrina to take over the club and plant the seeds of the cult? The characterization seems to come out of nowhere given his setup, and the reveal of him being a supernatural creature of some kind only creates more questions. Sabrina was also a shaky addition. I thought they were going to reveal something about her, that she was a robot similar to Charlie in the fourth closet, using an illusion disc maybe, but no characters ever make a comment about ringing in their ears, and the ending never gives a conclusion on why she behaved so weirdly or stuck so close to Mr. Renner in the first place. The cult itself is also confusing, which could be intentional. Mr. Renner never explains his goals and why he promoted preparing for the animatronic apocalypse so much. Don't get me wrong, the reasoning for preparing for the apocalypse can be vague, as the belief system of a cult is usually shaky at best. The reasoning should be a fox sense of logic, and no one who follows the cult should be able to explain or describe what they are following or doing in it. But cult leaders always have an agenda, and it's the fact that we never get one that causes problem in the story. Some people have alluded to a certain chant that the cult does is referring to Eleanor in some way, or phrase they made, uh, and Eleanor being Cirque's baby's parallel in Fazbear Frights, but in my mind, I, I don't think so, and even then the devotion to a character not yet introduced into the canon universe, nor can be found in the self-contained story, is a terrible way to write. <laughs> But at the end of the day, the story is harmless. As I said, it is our Fazbear Fright equivalent story. For this reason, there is little lore or connection with the main series canon, as it is just an experiment from Scott the writers, most likely. Sometimes the experiments turn up gold, like B7, while other times the experiment results in sodium chloride. I do admire Animatronic Apocalypse for that, for its experimentation. However, I also cannot pretend I don't see its glaring faults, which there are an abundance of. The absurdity of the cult's actions and beliefs slowly become less horrifying and more silly as the story goes on. The fourth wall bends to the pressure of all its ideas before finally giving way once it throws too much at the audience. Animatronic Apocalypse gets a 4 out of 10 from me. By no means bad, it is below average. Held by its ideas and concepts, but failing to execute them properly. In a rewrite, I could easily see this being an 8 or 9, but as it stands now, it will be a tale I revisit in my FNAF novel collection anytime soon. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by their most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. 
Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The final story of the night is Bobby Dots Part 1. Up there with Help Wanted as one of the biggest lore novellas that the Tales books have ever done. Our PV character is Abe Thayer who works as a security guard for Freddy Fazbear's Mega Pizzaplex. In his office, he often stares outside the window and looks at the Fazplex Tower, a high-tech apartment building for high-level workers of the Fazbear Entertainment Company and the Pizzaplex itself. His dreams aren't about the wealth and luxury of the Faz Towers, however, but the comfort of having a roof over his head. Abe is currently homeless, using all his money he gets from his job as a security officer to pay for his mother's needs. To get by, he sleeps in the hidden areas of the pizza plex at night, eats discarded pizza thrown away in various trash bins for sustenance, and washes himself using the sinks of various bathrooms. His luck finally changes when a director of Fazbear Entertainment promotes Abe to be on the mechanics team, which comes with the added perk of an apartment complex in the Fazbear Towers. When he goes to redeem his new home, the receptionist at the apartment front office for his new room says that all the apartments are full, with one apartment being declared off-limits. Abe, who is desperate for an apartment, tricks the receptionist into leaving so he can gain access to her computer and thus gain access to the room. Once inside the new modern apartment, Abe discovers that every wall and partial surface is covered in glass. He is soon introduced to a holographic woman dressed in pink with two pink frilly ponytails, named Three, who appears on the walls. She explains to Abe that she is a Bobby Dot, a home assistant present in every single Fazplex apartment. Abe is then later introduced to One and Two, who are also different holographic women in separate colors of blue and green respectfully. Later, Abe gives them all names based on their colors, those being Rose, Olive, and Gemini. As he gets accustomed to his new life of working a proud job as a mechanic and a life of a companionship with the Bobby Dots, several odd circumstances keep awakening him at night. When he comes back to his apartment one day, he even notices a trap door in the kitchen has been opened, and the three Bobby Dots dismiss and tell him he'll be late for work if he doesn't leave right now. Several other accidents keep happening, each time causing Abe to consider there to be more of a reason why the apartment was off limits in the first place. After confronting the Bobby Dots over the accident, they reveal that the room Abe is in has older models of the Bobby Dots, the first version of them that were connected to the walls and ceilings of the apartment room. According to one of the Bobby Dots, they are still active and want to fulfill Abe's request, but they're not good at their jobs. But when Abe gets electrocuted and almost boiled alive in his bath, he starts to consider that the previous tenant may have had some idea as to why the older Bobby Dots are so hostile. I can't go into more details without getting into spoilers, especially since this is only part one of two. But let me tell you that this story was an exciting ride that was intriguing and fun. The mystery of the Bobby Dots are definitely the biggest straw, and not just for the hilarity of Fazbear Entertainment effectively having anime maids for their higher-ups. The Bobby Dots were really fun characters. 
Their personalities were loud and energetic, and you could feel how they all helped to give Abe some relief in a life that has been nothing but roughness for a few years. You're never fully certain you can trust them, but you really hope their intentions aren't genuine. Abe himself is also a fantastic character, one of the best POV characters we have ever gotten in all of FNAF's literature attempts. He is the perfect everyman, treating the entirety of working at Phasma Entertainment as a 9-to-5 job, working on his education at the same time, while also being homeless and living inside the Pizzaplex by making a makeshift camp inside Roxy Raceway. You gotta love a man who isn't perfect, but honest and hardworking. The setting is also described beautifully, one-to-one with the game. I know for a fact the book had alterations made in it, besides just the cover of the book, one of the major ones being the fact that he changed the typo and submechnophobia, which would have alluded to multiple pizza plexes, which has since been rectified. But I have to believe another big reason for the alterations was for the details of the setting to more closely resemble the game. The description of the lobby from the gift shops, the giant Freddy statue in the middle of it, to even the lobby's bathrooms is perfect. In addition, since Abe works the pizza plex when it's completed and up and running, we also get to see multiplications from the game. Including the maintenance tunnels, Roxy Raceway, and the lobby, we also get scenes that take place in Fazer Blast, the West Arcade, and even the Superstar Daycare. These scenes are also full of fun lore that doesn't answer many story-hinging questions, but gives extra content and background to the development and animatronic characters of the Pizzaplex itself. The two biggest scenes being the West Arcade and Superstar Daycare scenes, both of which involve Abe teaching a new hire named Preston about the inner workings and how employees are to interact with the animatronic characters. And you know me. I love getting interactions with the Fazbear employees with their advanced robots. It always leads to an interesting interaction. In the West Arcade, we get a scene with a sleepy music man, with Abe explaining the purpose and cleaning measure to be taken with all the holes and tunnels that surround the West Arcade. Climaxing, with DJ Music Man trying to grab them out of the bathroom, a clear reference to when DJ Music Man tried to catch Gregory in Security Breach. But I love the fact that it is common knowledge from the employees that DJ Music Man has an experimental bouncer mode, and I love it even more that it's apparently activated if someone used the bathroom after hours. While neither character truly talks or interacts with DJ Music Man, I love that both Abe and Preston share their opinion on the behemoth. The giant animatronic spider, which is the size of a small bus, is noted by both men to be disturbing and strange, with even Abe noting how odd it is that a robot even has to sleep in the first place. It's also interesting to note that the attitude that Abe tries to convey to Preston about the Glamrock animatronics. The model he tells him he needs to adopt is a, they're the created and you were the master mentality, a belief that is probably widespread within the staff of the Pizzaplex itself, which also gives context to why Vanessa was so dismissive and rude to Glamrock Freddy before finding out he was helping Gregory. The Superstar Daycare is also really fun, giving a lot of context that was never needed in the game, but is fun backstory to one of the better game segments in Security Breach. First, I love that Preston questions why there are generators in clear view and reaching distance of toddlers in the play areas of the daycare. According to Abe, the reason comes from the origin of the daycare tin himself. You see, Sunrise and Moondrop were actually a performing theater robot used in the theater next to the daycare. His gimmick was that when the lights go out, he was to turn into Moon on stage and become rude and hostile to the audience, heckling them from the stage. 
When the daycare was constructed, Fazbear Entertainment decided to use Sun and Moon as the mascot and reprogram him with child caring functions, replacing the theater with a movie theater and comedy routine robot. The problem came from when the lights went out, as Moon's programming still had lingering effects and caused him to become abusive to children during nap times. To avoid a lawsuit, Fazbear Entertainment decided it was cheaper to just keep the lights on instead of trying to find the programming error. The problem with that was when they constructed the daycare, the electric grid was constantly having problems and causing blackouts. While there was a fire hazard with the daycare tenant being a literal evil entity when the lights go out, it now became a safety hazard. So Fazbear Entertainment decided to put backup generators in the facility so if a blackout did happen, the lights would still be on. However, this then led to a problem of there being no room to hook up generators after the construction was completed. Therefore, they made the intelligent decision to put them in the daycare and pray to God that no child ever comes into contact with them. The backstory for this area is hilarious and a perfect recipe for disaster and a perfect culmination for every reason to hate Fazbear Entertainment. I love it. Kristen and Abe also get some face-to-face -face time with Moondrop, who looks down on them outside the netting of the play area. What's interesting about their interaction is while Moon calls them naughty and is intimidating, he isn't homicidal yet, which does go to show that Moon was affected by Vanny like the other Glamrock animatronics, or it could just be that Moon doesn't kill Fazbear staff. Either way, the reactions of Abe, who is somewhat desensitized to Moon, is hilarious within the book. I guess I can't give a full review seeing that there is another part of this story that hasn't been released yet, but I will end this episode with two things I noticed throughout the novella that may have payoffs or implications in the second part coming out in March. First, the theme of programming errors. Not including Abe breaking into the Fastplex tower system to get his room card, every interaction within the Pizzaplex involves Abe talking about how that particular robot had a programming error. DJ Music Man's bounce mode that should have been removed but could activate because of a programming error. The Faz Blaster staff, bots dressed up as aliens, had a bug that caused them to say the wrong things. And then of course there's a daycare attendant who bugs out when the lights go out that caused them to be violent and abusive. Considering that the original version 1 Bobby Dots were discontinued and replaced with their holographic counterparts, and besides the fact that the V2s say that the originals were bad at their jobs, we don't know why they were truly discontinued. The fact that you're still active but appear to fail at providing for A's request because of a programming error could be leading to some form of reveal in part two. The second repeating set of elements that I noticed, but could just be simple reference, and that is all, is that in the Bobby Dots there are actually several references to count the ways. I'm serious, they even drop a direct reference near the end when Abe makes a joke with the quote, How has my apartment tried to kill me? Let me count the ways. While yes, this is a reference to the poem, the poem also plays a major role in the Fazbear Fright story of the same name, and his mockery of it lines up with the premise of the Fazbear Fright story itself, that being the many ways Fondant Freddy could kill the teen trap in his chess compartment named Millie. The various accidents that also occur to Abe could also be a subtle reference to count the ways as well, such as being electrocuted so much he flies across the room, water temperature slowly rising to a boil when he's using the bath, even the food poisoning he gets in the story that causes him to purge could be a slight nod to starvation, all of which are methods of death that Fondant Freddy suggested in his story. Perhaps it's just coincidental. 
or Andrea Wagner simply noticed the coincidence in the story and made a slight nod to it. I personally think the latter and that'll be all, but hey, I love me some simplification and always believe that a lot of its characters were underutilized. Fun and Freddy being the premier one besides Michael Afton. If this is all leading up to a Fun and Freddy reveal, I'm all for it. I'll turn my expectations and look at it simply as a reference for now, but I do hope that it's hinting to stuff to come in part two. I believe that is a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast or supporting us on our Buy Me a Coffee page using the link in the description. We also have a brand new merch store with t-shirts, posters, and more. You can check it out at intothenightmerch.com as well as the link in the description if you wish to support us and get cool swag at the same time. In our next episode, we will be finally, finally, be exploring the story of Security Breach. I have spent an entire year running from it. But you guys really want it, and who am I to deny what you all want? But if we are doing this, I'm going to make things the highest quality episodes I have ever done. I always appreciate your guys' patience for how long these take, and I try to always improve on each episode and never release an episode I am not proud of again. <laughs> so please keep your eyes out for those ones, and I'll let you know on my Twitter if I have any updates for the development. Once again, I've been your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Have a good night. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.